From our studio in San Francisco's The Civic Kitchen, this is Salt and Spine. In the talent show of my dreams, I took the stage and, modeling my act after videos of Julia Child stooping next to Jacques Pepin, demonstrated how to make perfect scrambled eggs. I'd practice using the window behind the stove in our kitchen as my mirror. After dark, I'd watch my reflection as I stirred and sauteed, explaining every step as I went. Hi, you're listening to Salt and Spine, stories behind cookbooks. I'm your host, Brian Hogan-Stewart. You just heard Jessica Batalana reading from her cookbook, Repertoire, All the Recipes You Need. Jessica has been writing about food and developing recipes for more than two decades, and she writes regularly for the San Francisco Chronicle, bringing home cooks a taste of her accessible, vibrant, and timeless recipes. Now, that's what this cookbook is. It's, in Jessica's words, 75 real recipes from real life that really work. And it's a wonderful book. It gives us a glimpse into that real life of Jessica's uh, in the recipe headers, which are full of these really uh, lovely and lively anecdotes from Jessica's life raising two boys with her wife in San Francisco. Now, this is Jessica's first cookbook, uh, though she's co-authored a handful of others, including Homegrown, Cooking from My New England Roots by Chef Matt Jennings, and Tartine, book number three, with Tartine owner Chad Robertson. We sat down with Jessica at San Francisco's The Civic Kitchen to talk cookbooks. Hi, Jessica. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's we're, so fun to be here. Yeah, we're so glad to have you on Salt and Spine. So your new cookbook is Repertoire. And one thing I love to do when I get a new cookbook is make the first recipe in the book just to get a sense for how you're opening it. So I made your green screen salad, I yeah, think it's called, yeah. last night. And I just have one complaint that I have to share with you. You say it serves four to six, and I think I ate like the entire bowl by oh, it's myself. it's just vegetables. <laughs> it's just vegetables, <laughs> with like the most delicious dressing in the world. Um, so so thank you for that recipe. Oh my gosh, I'm glad you tried it. It's, it's a good delicious. One. Um, so your book is Repertoire. It's your first solo cookbook other than than a short stack you did, which, right. which we'll get back to in a minute because I want to talk about that. Um, can you tell folks a little bit about what the concept is behind Repertoire, your cookbook? Yeah, sure. I think um, in some ways it, it came as sort of an antidote to all of the chef books that I'd co-authored prior to writing my first solo book. Uh Um, So I wrote five chef books and, you know, I would come sort of back from those collaborations and think like, okay, well now what are we going to have for dinner? You know, I felt like oftentimes those restaurant books are, you know, they're too complicated or uh, too time consuming. And, you know, it didn't really reflect how I cooked at home. Um, And then I had two children. I have a six-year-old and a Uh four-year-old. And I remember my brother saying to me, like, you're just going to eat cereal for dinner. Like, just give in. Right. You know, and I was like, I'm, a, you know, I've worked in food my whole life. Like, I'm a professional food writer, a recipe developer. Like, I'm not going to just eat cereal. But I, I did recognize that the way that I cooked had to change. Um, you know, I couldn't go to like three stores and find the perfect ingredient. Like, sure. I couldn't pull like any book off the shelf and like, you know, launch into some ambitious recipe. Like, I had to basically kind of lean into the things that I could cook by heart. Um, and so the book was really born out of that, this idea of like, what are my kind of slam dunk go-to recipes that I cook over and over again? And sort of recognizing and talking to my friends, many of whom have small children as well, like that you don't need like hundreds of recipes. You need like a couple dozen that you can really cook and that you can shop for by memory. Um, right. And this is my collection of them. Uh, it's sort of the stuff I can... I can do without thinking too hard um, and the stuff that my family really eats. Uh, I've been telling everyone it's real recipes for real life that really work, which I think kind of sums it up. Yeah. 
I like that. And, and so you were really steeped in chef's books, as you say, and this is sort of your antidote. You, you wrote five or six chef's books, starting with, I think the first one you did um, was Vietnamese home food, right? Yeah, Vietnamese Home Cooking, which is Charles okay. Fan's first book. That's uh-huh. my first book. And how was that process different? Obviously, obviously, certainly a lot of things different when you're co-authoring a book yeah. with someone else versus on your own. But how did this experience compare to the five other books you'd worked on? Well, it's so interesting because I always think with those chef collaborations, like it's almost like method acting, right? Because right. you're not, you know, you sort of, ha- the, the challenge with those is that you are trying to get into the mind and the voice of somebody else. And you know, I, I was fortunate. All of the books I've worked with are with people I really admire who um, cooked things that I really wanted to learn about. So Chad Robertson's Bread Book, mm-hmm. um, Ryan Farr, we did a sausage book together. And so, you know, I always felt like I was learning a great deal in those, but it's hard. I mean, it's not, um, you know, there are these moments where you're like, well, that's not how I would do it. But then it's not, you know, it's not my book. Um, sure. And so I always knew even in the early days, like when I was working on Charles's book that I w- would someday want to do a book of my own. So it was so satisfying to be able to do this book. You know, they're all my recipes. It's all the stories. Um, and, you know, embedded in it now are these sort of tips and tricks that I learned from all of these chefs over the years. So it's definitely right. not, I mean, it's a, it's solidly a home cook book. Like I am waving the flag for home cooks everywhere. But, you know, I picked up some things along the way that have made my home cooking better um, from those collaborations. So I'm glad that I have done them. And I'm glad to now have done my own thing too. <laughs> yeah. And they're not super technical recipes like a lot of um, recipes in chef's books are. I, not to keep talking about the greenest green salad, but it's on my mind because it's so delicious. But a, a green goddess dressing can be a pretty intricate recipe. And yours is pretty accessible, comes together really quickly in a food processor or a blender in a snap. Yeah. I mean, I think when I say they're recipes for real life, for me, that mm-hmm. is like often cooking in a very condensed period of time with you know, two small children, like begging for my attention. Right. Um, you know, so I didn't want it to be like 18 pots later, you know, four right. hours down the road. <laughs> um, and it was, it's funny, my friend Samin uh, Nasrat, who uh-huh. wrote Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat, um, she writes a column for the New York Times, and she wrote a recent column talking about the greenest green salad. Right. And she said, you know, honestly, Jessica, when I first picked up your book and I read that first recipe and I saw that the first ingredient was Hellman's mayonnaise, she said to me like, oh, I thought it was going to be like that kind of book. <laughs> You know, and then she sort of got into... We won't break that down, whatever that means. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Um, And then she got deeper into it and she... You know, I give a recipe for homemade aioli in the book. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a nice thing to know how to do. But I also think, and she says in the article that the question for me now is not like, oh, are we going to make our greenest, you know, our green goddess dressing with homemade aioli or with store-bought mayonnaise? It's like, are we going to make dinner from scratch or are we going to get takeout or, you know, prepared foods? So I think that, you know, my ideas about like my sort of lofty ideals about food and cooking did shift a little bit. But I also feel like there's a place for solid, reliable recipes that come together without a huge amount of fuss, but that are really delicious. And Mm -hmm. I think you don't have to, it's not either or. And so I hoped in this book to sort of demonstrate that and how you can kind of ring the maximum amount of flavor, you know, by with some technique, but not a lot of fuss. Are there favorite examples you have of like adaptations and ways that you can take this collection of recipes and make it your own repertoire? Yeah, I actually, um, I taught a class with some of the recipes from the book the other day. And one of the recipes we did was um, the roasted carrots with burrata and uh-huh. salsa rustica. Yeah. 
And, uh, and I was sort of talking to the students about like, you know, burrata and salsa rustica is good on tomatoes. It's good on, you know, corn that you cook and cut off the cob. Um, it's, you know, it's good on roasted asparagus. Um, you can sub almonds for the pistachios and the salsa rustica. And it was sweet because two days after the class, I got this email with a photo from one of the, one of the men who had taken the class. And he said, I, I made your roasted carrots for Mother's Day. And he said, but I, you know, I used almonds and I added some cilantro. And then I thought maybe I'd overseason the salsa a little bit. So I backed off, you know, on the cheese and, and instead of burrata, I used feta. And I was like, this is exactly the idea. Like you sort right. of get the, you know, the nut idea of a recipe. Um, and then, you know, it worked from there. Like, I think there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of wiggle room in these recipes. Like there's a braised chicken dish in there that's done with carrots and parsnips and Brussels sprouts, which is, you know, a nice fall recipe. But that same method of braising, you know, you could add, you know, artichokes and fava beans and use the same basic idea. Um, It has like a dry hard cider as the braising liquid, but you could easily use, you know, you could white wine or chicken stock or, you know, vegetable stock or water. And I, and I try and sort of empower the readers um, through the, the head notes in the book to be sort of flexible. I always say to people like make the recipe once the way that it's written so Mm -hmm. that you know what the intention is. But then, you know, I shouldn't say this because I obviously want to sell books, but eventually (laughs) the goal is like that you don't really need this book anymore. You know, that you have sort of gleaned enough from it that it informs your own home cooking. And, you know, the recipes become like a reference in your mind, but you're not pulling the book off the shelf every time. When I wrote this book, I thought a lot about the Silver Palette cookbook, which Uh was like a staple of my mom's library. And I think a lot of mostly moms of my parents' generation who cooked at home. And I think now there are some recipes in that book that are so codified that you can say like chicken marbella yeah. and people are like, oh yeah, I know that's like chicken and olives and prunes. And you may not know the exact proportions, but you know the recipe. And I thought about that a lot. I mean, for me, that's sort of like the dream is to have people be like, oh yeah, that greenest green salad. Like, you know, does it have snap peas in it? Like, does it have blanched asparagus? Cause you know, it could, Right. it doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> no. Um, and so I think, you know, I want people most of all to, to cook. And if that means you have to like change things up a bit, I feel totally okay with that. Yeah. And you alluded to this briefly, but I think that's also crucial when folks are grocery shopping, especially home cooks. You're at the grocery store, you're at the farmer's market, and you feel perplexed by what to make. Having this, this sort of repertoire and you see like great snap peas at the farmer's market it can actually be an inspiration. Is that something you thought about when you were making the book, making recipes that, I mean, you've sort of alluded to this a bit, but that are really memorable and make grocery shopping easier too? Yeah. I mean, I don't, um, I I am terrible about making grocery lists. I often just go into the store and like do the 50 yard stare, you know, but I think, um, (laughs) you know, when my brain finally kicks into gear, it's, um, it, it is these repertoire recipes that I am, you know, that I go to. And I was telling somebody the other day that I, if they came to my house tomorrow for dinner, I would likely cook them something out of the book, not because, you know, I have this new book, but because it really is like what we're cooking and eating. And so for me, it's, you know, it's made my life. It's funny because I think we, we have this idea of repetition of whatever it is, like multiplication tables or like scales or like language being like so boring and tedious. (laughs) But I think if you master a repertoire, particularly in the kitchen, it sort of becomes kind of freeing because you know, like you can go into a store and be, and look at things and pull together a meal because you know how to make a bunch of things. Um, 
Or you can look at your pantry and think, oh, geez, I don't have anything. And then be like, oh, actually, I've got like pasta and I have garlic and I have parsley, like half a dead, you know, bunch of parsley. Like I can make alio olio. Yeah, for sure. I want to talk a bit about your process. So you write in the book, um, you say I'm a recipe writer, but I'm not much for rules. And you say I've tried to answer the questions I know my friends would ask if they were making something for the first time. Like, can you substitute this for that? Can you make it ahead? What is your process like for anticipating what those questions are going to be? How do you sit down and think about when you're developing a recipe? What would a a home cook who might not have the sort of breadth of experience that you have think about or question when they sit down with this recipe? Yeah, I think this is actually where it's been helpful to have worked on those chef books Mm -hmm. prior to this because I was always like the advocate for the home cook, you know, the one that's like, nobody has a chinois and (laughs) um, like no normal person will ever do this. And, uh, and so I feel like I am much more, I'm not like a particularly fancy cook. I mean, I, I I recognize the irony in that because I have a cookbook, but I still feel like I'm very much like a good home cook. Mm -hmm. And so it's not a stretch for me to think about what is a bridge too far because you know, I'm cooking not in a, and developing recipes, like not in a vacuum. I'm doing it like with my real life, like swirling around me. And so right. I'm like, if I wouldn't do it, like I don't want to ask somebody else to do it. If I don't have that piece of equipment, like I don't want to go buy it. And I'm sure that the average home cook won't want to buy it either. Uh, and then, you know, I sent a lot of recipes out to people, like regular people to test. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of the questions that came back helped me like further edit and hone the recipes. You know, people would say like, well, I actually remember getting an email or a text from a friend of mine who was midway through making the spaghetti and meatballs. And she's like, I've made the meatballs. You know, can I leave them? Can I leave it in the fridge overnight? Like uh-huh. the raw meatballs? And I was like, yes. And then she's like, okay, what if I don't want to make, you know, the tomato sauce? Like, what can I do? Should I fry them? And I was like, well, you can just poach them in jarred tomato sauce. Right. And she's like, you know, what? <laughs> and then I was like, and then like you can freeze that whole like mess of it together. So I think, you know, a lot of those, um, my, you know, like addressing of these questions came from real things that people who were testing recipes asked me. Right. Um, you know, and you, if you're saying that you're making a collection of durable recipes, like the book is, it's my repertoire, but it's not really a book about me. It's a book about the recipes. And so mm-hmm. I feel like I sort of am like living and dying by the recipes. Like they have to work. They have to work for everyone or else like I haven't really done my job. So I hope that I've done my job. I think I've done my job. Um, you know, that people anywhere, even who aren't like seasoned cooks could, could pull these off. Now you open the book um, with a quote from a Joni Mitchell song from the from the Joni Mitchell song "Raised on Robbery," and it goes, "I'm a pretty good cook, sitting on my groceries. Come up to my kitchen, I'll show you my best recipe." I'm just wondering, is there a story there, or you just? Well, I fit. love Joni Mitchell. Uh-huh. Uh, it does fit. It's funny, actually. I um, I didn't realize. There's so many things I didn't realize about writing a book. One of them was that, you know, as the author, this is an absurd like admission, but uh, you're sort of responsible for all of the things that you put in your manuscript, right? Sure. So I had put this Joni Mitchell quote in as the epigraph, thinking it would be like a lovely thing to put in. Right. And at some point down the road, my editor was like, you have to get permission to use that. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, okay. I sort of thought that that was something that maybe they handled um, and they, they don't. And then I was like, oh, well, what do I do to get permission? And they're like, well, you just have to find Joni Mitchell's people right. and ask her. 
And I was like, okay. <laughs> yeah. um, so then like proceeded to be like a deep dive into like the depths of Google to figure <laughs> out like how you get like music licensing. Right. And then I finally found, you know, Joni Mitchell's people and went through all the hoops. Um, and then I had to pay like a not insignificant sum of money. But I felt like, you know, Joni hasn't had the easiest time lately. So I, I was like, she could use my, you know, my support. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I'd like to imagine that maybe she's seen the book and seen the epigraph, but you know, probably not. Um, I had wanted to also use a quote from Bonnie Raitt um, uh-huh. in the, uh, I think for the head note of one of the birthday cakes. And in the end, I couldn't find, it wasn't jo- or it wasn't Bonnie Raitt's people. It was the the original songwriter of the song that Bonnie Raitt made famous. And okay. I was like, you want me to find like this obscure, and I couldn't find her. Apparently she lives somewhere in like Bohemian, like Los Angeles, greater Los Angeles. Right. So I couldn't use the quote because I, I couldn't get permission. <laughs> yeah. Bummer. I know. But bummer. like Sorry, Bonnie. The Joni quote. Yeah. Um, one of my favorite things is you include a recipe for Negronis with potato chips um, in like sort of the appetizer and starter section, yeah. which like how many times have we just had a Negroni for an appetizer? Yeah, or dinner. Totally. You know, or for I mean, dinner. No judgment. Totally acceptable. <laughs> um, and, and I love, I think it really just sort of showcases the simplicity and also the flexibility um, that it's just Negronis with a bag of potato chips yeah. and you say any any bag will do any bag will do bag of lace it was funny because the copy editor of the manuscript came back to me at one point and she was like are we waiting on a recipe for homemade potato chips and i was like <laughs> fuck no <laughs> no way no, we are not um and actually that i mean i can remember sort of by heart so many recipes for food but mm-hmm. i have a really difficult time remembering cocktail recipes i don't know like my brain right. just cannot get around so like the negroni is like one recipe that i can remember because it's three things almost in equal proportion and so that is definitely our go-to drink and then we traveled in italy when our older son was like about one um you know and it's like that lovely afternoon ritual like everyone sits around they drink negronis mm-hmm. they eat potato chips and it's so civilized and so <laughs> after we took that trip i just started like serving potato chips as a snack before a meal really also because i no longer had time to like do a whole like appetizer spread sure and the potato chips are always the first things to go like people love potato chips yeah. um so i was like there's no shame here and people love negroni so yeah it's the only cocktail recipe in the book but i feel like it's like a three i mean it's a four season cocktail i think yeah i think so sometimes i'll make boulevardiers in the um in the winter and just swap the gin for uh-huh. for bourbon yeah it's as crazy as we get (laughs) (laughs) i like it we'll be right back with more of our conversation with jessica badalana now today we're talking with jessica about her latest book repertoire this book is full of weeknight recipes that you'll want to make again and again as you heard earlier i loved the greenest green salad It's a green goddess dressing that comes together really easily uh, and is a real crowd pleaser. But there's also the pantry pastas, the meatballs many ways, and the three ways with beans sections, uh, which showcase Jessica's unique spins on some of these comfort classics. Now, this book is full of recipes that you'll want to add to your repertoire and stories that will transport you to Jessica's kitchen around a big platter of grilled meat or a celebratory birthday cake. 
And did you know June is Pride Month? We at Salt and Spine are celebrating some of our favorite LGBTQ cookbook authors this month. Make sure you're following us on Instagram and Twitter at Salt and Spine, where we're sharing other favorite works by queer authors. Now, before we jump back, I want to remind you that Salt and Spine is recorded at the Civic Kitchen, the recreational cooking school offering hands-on classes and events for home cooks in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen is an open, airy, welcoming space. It's perfect for learning different techniques, cuisines, and styles from their staff of expert chefs. And we personally love their wonderfully curated cookbook wall, which you may have seen as the backdrop of all of our Salt and Spine episodes. Now, don't miss some of their upcoming classes on topics like, get ready for it, Making Love in Your Kitchen, a class for couples, or they have a great summer learn to cook series. You can find a list of all the Civic Kitchen's classes and sign up at civickitchensf.com. Now back to our conversation with Jessica Batalana. So you mentioned the Silver Palette cookbook as a th- as a book that you thought about when you were working on this book. Are there other cookbooks or authors that sort of inspired this book specifically or that you turned to when you were working on it? Yeah, I have a um I have a big cookbook collection. I love cookbooks. Um and you know, I mean it makes sense too because it's my work, so I'm always curious to see what what people are doing. Um, somebody was asking me this the other day. And the one book that I use often is Sunday Supper at Luke, mm-hmm. which is Suzanne Goen's first book, yeah. um, which is now, I don't know, probably 10 or so years old. And that's uh, set up in a menu format. And I would probably never cook like the complete menu because it's a lot of food and a lot of work. Um, right. But all of her ideas in there are great. I think she just, the way that she combines flavors is really smart. Um, and I learned a lot reading that book. So that is one that I turned to again and again, even just to like lift ideas from like, I was recently doing something with pearl onions, mm-hmm. which are like just a real pain in the ass to mm-hmm. peel. Yeah. And I've seen the method of like blanching them to make peeling a little easier, which doesn't right. really make it any easier. And then I read like somewhere buried deep in Suzanne's book, there's like a reference to roasting pearl onions in their skins with olive oil and salt and pepper. And then the skins just slip off. And I was like, I'm just going to try this. And it totally (laughs) worked. And I was like, this is like an Easter egg buried in this book. Like, it's just like as a random aside, like just roast these. And I feel like that there's so many of those in that book where you're like, oh, yeah. Yeah. I come back to it again and like find something, find something new. Use Baking with Julia a lot. That was one of the first baking books that I really got into. You know, and it's a compilation of lots of different bakers. Um, So that one is one that I turn to a lot. I mean, there's so many good books now. It's sometimes I go into cookbook stores and I feel like, oh God, like why did I publish a cookbook? Because <laughs> there's so many of them. Um, and I did think about that a lot. Like, you know, there is the like the devil on my shoulder that's like, does the world need like another cookbook? Um, and what I decided was, yes, no. What I decided, <laughs> yes, <laughs> absolutely. I decided that what would sort of separate mine from, you know, from other other books out there is really like the stories, like the head notes are like deeply narrative. Yeah. Um, and I wanted people to sort of understand my perspective about things. And so, you know, I tried to add some context through that because I think a lot of the recipes in the book are pretty classic. Like there's no like, you know, there's no matcha in the book. There's like no sumac in the book. I mean, right. I like those things. I think those are are fine and they belong in other people's repertoires for sure, but they don't, they're not in mine. And so I was right. like, I'm not super trendy and I was not going to all of a sudden become trendy for the sake of the book. Um, so I hope that like the recipes kind of remain, you know, evergreen that in yeah. 10 years and 15 years, you can still, you will still want to make tart to 10 or, you know, a flat roasted chicken with garlic and butter. Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. 
Um, well, I'm glad you did the book. And I think it does have a lot, a good amount of narrative and the recipe headers. Um, you also, I think we, we see a lot of your life through the book. We also see a lot of your life through your column for the San Francisco Chronicle, through your social media accounts. And one thing that you do is you cook weekly at a hospice center on Mondays. You cook, yeah. I think, three times a week at your kid's school, yeah. your children's school. Um, so I, I love that we get this sense of who you are and how you're involved in the community and particularly how you're using food and cooking to be involved in your community in various ways. Did that have an impact or has that had an impact over the course of your cookbook career on how you think about developing recipes, putting together collections of recipes? I think so. I think, um, you know, both the hospice experience and at my school I, I've learned an important lesson, which is like, I am not my food. Like, I mm -hmm. think I make good food. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I try not to get my ego so wrapped up in it. Like, it is only dinner, you know, it's right. only food. <laughs> right. And I think you get certainly get taught those lessons, you know, through that kind of, you know, working with kids and working with residents nearing the end of their life. Like, you know, sometimes we send up trays or I send out food to the kids and it comes back, you know, not eaten or partially eaten. And, and there was probably a time that I'd be like, I don't understand. Like, this is delicious. Why aren't they eating it? Right. And now I recognize that, you know, there is sort of like grace in beauty in, you know, in the act of preparing and serving food with like love and care. Um, and, and it's as much about that as it is like getting the rave reviews. So yeah, I think in, in that sense, um, you know, my perspective has, has developed, I guess I shouldn't say changed, but developed over the years. And then I thought, I felt like it was important to show, you know, I don't know that there are too many other lesbian mom cookbook authors out there. I, I'm trying to think, I mean, there are certainly other queer, you know, authors, um, cookbook authors, but I don't know that any of them have kids. And so for me, that was like, it was, I never set out to, um, you know, to make that a huge priority in writing the book, but I felt like, I've always been really open about my life and I wasn't going to stop for the sake of the book. And I think there's something really nice about like modeling this, you know, family life. And it's, you know, a different family um, structure than is maybe common, but it, I think it's important to kind of show that. Um, and so, yeah, I think I was really upfront about, you know, raising my two children, you know, with my wife and, and our family life. Um, yeah, absolutely. You have a beautiful family and we're so glad you're sharing your family with us through your cookbook. Your book also reminded me so much of Small Victories by Julia Tertian. Um, and she also does a lot of community service and cooking at, at various community centers too. So I think she's another wonderful queer woman cookbook author yeah. who we have to look to as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, she and I, I, I would say, you know, I shouldn't speak for her, but I, you right. know, I think we share that idea of like the, you know, that there is so much you know, sort of power and opportunity in food and, and, and cooking for others. Um, and so many interesting ways to like use that skill and, um, and kind of harness that. So, yeah. Now you did write one other solo cookbook, which is part of the short stack collection, which are, are for folks who don't know, maybe are, are small sort of single issue cookbooks. And you wrote the book on corn. I did. Um, which I love. <laughs> I'm a, I'm a Midwesterner and nice. I grew up eating sweet corn constantly. <laughs> and I loved, um, your description. I think in repertoire, I, I read this. Um, you have a sweet corn fritter, mm -hmm. sweet corn fritter, I believe. Um, and you talk about growing up and eating sweet corn like, 
typewriter style, yeah. which is so evocative, <laughs> and I loved that. <laughs> I totally relate to that. Our family is also, I feel like you can tell a lot about people. You know, it used to be like that that expression was like, oh, Catholics, what is it, like Catholics put the butter, leave the butter in the fridge and Protestants leave it out on the counter? <laughs> uh-huh. I, think, I think that's it. But I always think like you can tell a lot about people by watching them eat corn on the cob yeah. like do they cut a piece of butter off right. and rub it on the corn that's the wrong that's way. wrong obviously yeah. you yeah. roll yeah, it yeah, on the smart. stick you right? roll it yeah and, you know <laughs> Absolutely. You, yes you sacrifice a stick of butter <laughs> yeah but that's the only way is the only way to do it yeah and it's fine because then you just have your corn stick that's your corn in yeah. the fridge and you just <laughs> that's pull your that corn out butter. <laughs> yeah. exactly yeah i feel like when i see people just do the like cut the pat and rub it i'm like oh yeah red yeah. flag right right <laughs> Um, well, I love that. So, um, your book repertoire is obviously very focused for home cooks. I'm wondering if there are things you think home cooks are like wrongly afraid of, or is there something home cooks should really be doing more of or trying more of, or just feeling more empowered to do? Uh, deep frying. I don't uh-huh. know. Home cooks are always so afraid of deep frying. And I'm like, it's not such a big deal. Yeah. Like just, so I only have, uh, I think I only have one fried recipe in here for the salt and pepper shrimp. And, you know, I mean, deep fried things are delicious. So I feel like it's worth the like mess and the like, you know, smell. But yeah, people are always like, oh, I don't like to fry at home. Like, come on. It's not like that's easy. I don't know what they're afraid is going to like happen. Right. This idea of like this cauldron of oil. So yeah, I mean, I don't know that I would encourage people to deep fry at home more. (laughs) But I don't think they should be afraid of it. Like there's something like, you know, homemade French fries. Like that's one of the best things in the world. Yeah. I also think people are like weird about leaving their um, ovens on for long periods of time, which is, Mm. I think, why everyone loves like the instant pot and the slow cooker. Right. Which I don't understand. And I'm now I'm not never going to get an endorsement from like the instant (laughs) pot company. But I just am like, just turn your, like, just turn your oven down. Like, you have an oven that will do the same thing as your like crock pot. Right. But people seem afraid of leaving their, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm giving people bad advice, but. Right. I don't own either of those appliances, so I just, like, do things overnight in the oven, and I don't know. Yeah. So far, it's worked out. (laughs) Yeah. Well, as a person who's had an oven fire, I I, I do get a little little nervous sometimes, but most of the time. Wait, what what were the conditions of the oven fire? So, uh, we moved into a new apartment, and we didn't... I had never had an oven with a broiler in the, like, drawer. Uh It was always in the main compartment, and so I think some things ended up in the drawer that should not ever be broiled like things made of wood like rolling pins for instance (laughs) um so that that oven didn't last us very long it sounds like operator (laughs) error i mean no offense (laughs) it it definitely was it absolutely was although today just before i came over here i had like a massive pyrex i saw this yeah on your instagram i saw this yeah uh i did the thing that i know not to do which is like i had left a pyrex in the oven and i had preheated the oven to cook something else and then i was like oh shoot the pyrex so i pulled it out and I, I sort of like, as I was doing it, it was like the slow-mo moment where I turned and I put it on like my cold countertop. Right. And it shattered into approximately one gazillion pieces <laughs> yeah. everywhere. I was like, hmm, uh, that's not convenient right now. Yeah. So. I'm sorry that happened, but perhaps <laughs> that's the lesson we can end on yeah. is that maybe home, it's okay to make mistakes. If you're a home cook, yes, it's okay. It is. I mean, in making mistakes is how you get better at things, you know? You have to crack some eggs to make an omelet. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks so much, Jessica. We really appreciated you. Thanks for having me. It was fun. 
And that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. Head to our website, saltandspine.com, to hear Jessica Batalana reading an excerpt from Repertoire and for recipes for the greenest green salad and her coconut cream cake. And you can enter to win a copy of Repertoire in our weekly cookbook giveaway. Now, if you like hearing from your favorite cookbook authors on Salt and Spine, and we hope you do, remember to click subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Our program was produced today by Allison Sullivan and myself. Thanks to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonomo, and the Civic Kitchen Cooking School team. Our original theme song is created by Brunch for Lunch. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love.